Hello, uh, before we get started on the episode properly, I uh, just wanted to let you all know that uh, it's going to be a slightly longer episode, as you can probably see from the running time, uh, because towards the end we're going to be talking to uh, Callum O'Dwyer, a uh, friend of the podcast, about his experiences suffering from coronavirus. Uh, and as a result of that, we're going to be talking quite in depth about uh, the symptoms and side effects of coronavirus, about what life is like living with it, about the surrounding anxiety and mental health issues uh, with it, um, and isolation um and the specific medical symptoms as well so just to let you know do be aware of that uh when listening enjoy the show Hello and welcome to this episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host Jasper at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter and joining me this week I am delighted to have Robert Verkake. I'm a journalist and author. I recently wrote a book called Posh Boys, How the English Public Schools Ruin Britain. Um, that was published 2018. And I am also co-founder of a, a think tank called Private School Policy Reform, which aims to open up the debate on the future of our education system, focusing on the reform of private schools. Hmm. I didn't actually know the last part, so that's news to me as well. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, uh, <laughs> we've got a number of other like-minded folk involved in the in the think tank, and it's it's, it's got a bit of momentum going. So we would oh, excellent. Anyone um, who wants to join, to join, get involved. Mm, well, yeah. Well, listeners, as you can probably suspect from that introduction we're going to be talking about private schools today um the history of private education um why i suppose uh, yeah why they should be abolished i think we can start with that um and all, all we hinge around the book that robert wrote posh boys which is a really fantastic book which um if you haven't heard of it you haven't read it you should definitely go read it um and for listeners who haven't read the book or don't know anything about the book would you just be able to give a brief uh, a kind of like overview of what the book is, what you were trying to say, like what kind of stuff you're talking about in it. Well, that's quite a big first question, isn't it? Because sorry, <laughs> the book is has been my life for uh, a few years now. Um, so to sort of go back back to the beginning, I would say that it's been a it's been a question that's been sort of burning into my brain. For many years now, why do we have a two-tier education system in this country? Why is it that um, we have a system which allows people with money to purchase an unfair advantage for their for their own children over everybody else's? And you know that's that's the question. But the point is, it it hasn't it's never been addressed. So over the years, people have been talking, and I've been involved in discussions about equal opportunity or. Um, a merit, you know, fair and, and true meritocracy, but no one seems to want to talk about private education and how that undermines absolutely everything about our democracy. Really, everything about uh, equal opportunity and um, um, you know the right, the right to a, a fair start in life for every child in this country. So that was my starting point. I wanted a proper debate about the issue that was almost taboo because people just don't talk about it and particularly politicians don't seem to want to address the issue for all sorts of different reasons one of which is that it causes them personal issues where they have to um, identify 
decisions perhaps they've made about their own children's education. They know it's not fair, but they feel that uh, they must give their own children the the best possible start in life, which obviously is a it's the the sort of crux of the problem. And what 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 I found really interesting about the book and, and what what maybe a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know perhaps is is that you well, see it's kind of a history of the english public schools isn't it and you kind of go into quite uh considerable detail about uh the founding of the very first public schools uh almost a thousand years ago pretty much um uh like winchester college um down the road from me um and how these schools were not set up as the kind of fee-paying privileged institutions we know today they were set up to educate the poor and it is this kind of bizarre um twisting of purpose throughout history by successive individuals and successive rewrites and changing of attitudes and influences that they have become what we know today they've sort of just completely flipped in in their in their role and and as you you know as, as you say at the very end of the book like how the public schools are today if you were to show them to the original founders that would be completely would they be completely shocked this was kind of happening in a pre- well, as I said, it was almost a thousand years ago. This this was very much pre-industrial revolution. This is pre-modern capitalism that we had this sort of influx of wealth and negative influence of wealth into the education system. So, in would you would you say that these the the the, the public schools, private schools, are sort of this long-standing, almost medieval England legacy, which sort of still permeates society? Yeah, no, you you characterised it very well. The, the the original public schools. I mean, they were public when they were set up in the 14th century. You know, as you say, Winchester College and Eton College, and later Harrow, St Paul's, Westminster. They were all all set up because they were for the community. the The idea was that they would educate local local children for free, usually um, in the service of the church. But the the principal aim was to was was to um, create sort of meritocratic um, community education, which is you know given this was you know more than six hundred years ago, it was extraordinarily extraordinarily bizarre almost that um, medieval um, shakers and movers were talking about giving um, the local children of the poor a fair chance in life, you know and. Because they were so successful, because and the reason for that was they were linked to um, they linked to the, u- the universities. They were linked to to Oxford and Cambridge, and to get on in in medieval Britain, it was important that you also um, were able to access a, a university education as well. But because these schools, Harren particularly um, Winchester, fast tracked local kids to. Um, Oxford and Cambridge they became very popular with the rich powerful the aristocracy who suddenly thought well hold on you know we've been schooling our kids at home or in other institutions which aren't quite successful we want we want a part of this and the, you know, the schools could not resist despite the fact that their statutes and charters had caps on fees they even actually wrote down you know, 600 years they wrote down you can't your your parents can't earn X amount of money. You can't own um, a certain amount of land to qualify for places of this school. But they finally could not resist the um, 
the, the attractive um, influence of wealthy families who hijack these schools and use them to send their own skills um, to them. And as a result, over the years, by the time we got to sort of Georgian Victorian times, there were no or very few free um, pupils as intended by the, the founders of the school. And they, were, you know, they were still charities. They were still in name only. They were charities. And there were a number of court cases over whether or not they still retained their charitable intentions. Um, but mm. they, are, and, they are... And of course they still do. They still are. They still are yeah. charities. League, they are legal charities. But that, that's, I mean, that's a, a massive point, bone of contention now, isn't it? Do they really feel, feel a charitable... Um, intention are their objectives objectives truly charitable? Because if if we, if you know that um, there are six hundred thousand children at private schools today, and only one percent—that's six thousand six thousand kids—get their education for free, that doesn't sound like a particularly charitable education to me. That sounds like um, that's tokenism. That's giving, you know. A, a little nod in the direction of their um, history and getting on with the commercial business of making money out of education. Absolutely. Um, and you, you talked a little bit about the perspectives on, on private schools and particularly with regards to politicians. Um, in your in your research of the book um, and just in your kind of experience on, the, on this subject generally, do you, do you ever really encounter people who have a positive view of public education and private schools? Do you think, do, 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 you ever, do you ever meet anyone like that? Or I suppose somewhat of an overriding sense I got from the book and also just my sense of it in general is that private schools are, as you, as you say, a taboo and that sort of everyone kind of realises they're not really, they shouldn't really exist, but doesn't either doesn't really know how to get rid of them or doesn't want to exert the political capital to get rid of them um so are there pe- are there people who are genuinely like no these are great they should continue to exist they do a great job <laughs> they are good things or is it is it more just that sense of taboo like yeah well uh or is it both what what i found was what found really surprising because when i when i began writing this book when i began the research i visited a number of of top um, public schools, including um, Charterhouse and and Dulwich, and you know Eton wouldn't wouldn't um, engage with me, but but Dulwich and and, and Charterhouse would. And what what I found, and some of some of the other heads who I spoke to, former heads from public schools, they all seem to accept there was something wrong with the system. Not there wasn't a, I didn't meet a single person who said. It's fine. What are you? What, why are you asking such awkward questions? We, you know, we're, we're running extraordinarily successful institutions, and we're in the business of of educating, um, you know, the very best in this country and in the service of this country. So, why, why are you why are you put, prodding us with your uh, annoying questions? I didn't get any of that. All they always began with: we know there's a problem. Um, and we want to make it fairer, and I wouldn't have started, wouldn't wouldn't have, wouldn't begin with an education system that we have now if we had a, a clean sheet of paper. Um, but 
given where we are, these are the these are the these are the concessions. These are the reforms we're prepared to make. And a number of schools, including Eton and, and Dulwich, are, are committed to ne- a needs blind um, entrance uh, policy, which means that they want all the kids at their schools to be there on merit rather than wealth. So basically, they they want them to be um, glorified. Um, academies of of excellence in in a sort of grammar school format that's what that that's the kind of dream and you know the former former headmaster at Eton that was his that was his ambition and he, he was very clear that's where they wanted to go but that requires an extraordinary amount of money which they don't have um, so there's a real sort of disconnect between this idea that one day they will become these super grammar schools, centres of excellence, but they will never be, they'll never be able to afford that kind of um, that kind of bursary system. And do you think that's a more modern phenomenon that people, uh, the people in the the private education system and, and those kind of circles, are much more sympathetic to? reform and and the idea that it is not a fair system or do you think it's a sort of reoccurring historical trend because what i thought what i one of the things i found really interesting about the book was how you was you talked about the history of attempted reforms and how you know you, you quoted winston churchill being like mm. yeah the, the the these probably do need to be reformed and that was back in the 1940s and and yeah um you know the, the various legal battles you mentioned and you you went into detail about the the specific people and situations in which it seemed like reform was just on the cusp of the cusp of the horizon, and then something happened, or yeah. uh, uh, and, and and it meant that reforms never happened. So, is it is it then fair to say that the kind this kind of antipathy towards the public school system conjoined with a lack of will? to really do go the full stretch and just abolish them or at least remove charity status um is that is that essentially the actual history of england's public schools or at least the late modern history of england's public schools no that's very true that is very true there were there have been attempts yeah since the um since the second world war to reform and even abolish private schools and as you say winston churchill was even part of that reform program and he was he he talked about flooding the public schools with bursary boys that was his that was his phrase and everybody in 1940 1942 when britain was on its knees and was questioning how we had waged a war so poorly because we we you know we, before el alamein in north Africa, we had it all just been a series of defeats or you know miracle escapes from disaster. So people were questioning the cadre of the of the leadership of the country. They wanted to know why all these generals were so rubbish, and they were all part of the same public school education system. They'd gone from you know Eton, Harrow, um, Winchester, Marlborough, straight to. straight to the um, the military academies um, Sandhurst 
And so there was a there was a movement to try, try and remove them. Most people thought that they probably wouldn't be around at the end of the war because we were fighting for a, a different kind of society. And at the end of the war, obviously, Churchill was booted out, so there was even more reason to think that reform was on the cards. Clement Attlee introduced a fair welfare system, but private schools were not part of that reform programme. As radical as it was, um, Attlee didn't want to include the abolition of, of private schools. And you know, that was obviously partly because of his own background and partly because of you know, half the cabinet were... were um, actually, no, I think Attlee's, Attlee's cabinet was... Um, were, were, were far fewer than that. It was, it was either a third or a quarter who were educated at, at private school. So even though his, his cabinet was full of, full of state-educated um, politicians, they still resisted this attempt to um, reform private schools. And private school... I suppose one of the reasons for that might be that private schools were on their knees after the war. I mean, they, they'd lost an awful lot of pupils. A lot of families couldn't afford to send their kids to school. Um, during the evacuation, during the Blitz... The, the schools were relocated out of London, so they were in a pretty poor state anyway. And that school like Dulwich was already, um, a, it already looked like a, a grammar school. Because very few people at the, at the school were fee-paying pupils. Most of them were, or nearly all of them, yeah, were um, from the local community, paid by the council. Um, and then when, 1968, when... Um, when Harold Wilson um, was Prime Minister, there was another very serious attempt to remove them. They set up a number of commissions to reform the private school system. And the commissions came back with very radical proposals to abolish private schools. But unfortunately, um, you know, Labour was you know, riddled with the same kind of personal hypocrisies that most governments are and that is that you know they, if we remove private schools where are we going to send our children and Wilson himself had sent his kids to, to private schools um, so it never it, it, it never um, got the political um, priority that, that, it, that it should have done and obviously um, once Wilson was gone um, we'd never really got another Another serious opportunity. Blair, Blair removed um, the um, assisted places scheme, which had been brought in by Margaret Thatcher, um, which was which the schools, some of the schools had come to rely on as the, these were state-sponsored um, pupils, who, who obviously you know, helped support the, the private schools. Um, Blair removed that. That was his big reform. And there was, and Blunkett wanted to get rid of David Blunkett and the Education Secretary wanted to get rid of charity status, but um, a line in the sand had been drawn, and that was as far as you know, radical reform of private schools was going to go. Um, and then you kind of fast forward to Jeremy Corbyn and the uh, the debacle of last year. <laughs> And you can see just, I mean, you know, that was that was a, you know, a very radical proposal, which the, which, uh, less Corbyn actually, more John McDonnell, uh, ran with, but 
it's hard to say whether it was a policy that was very unpopular with the you know, general voting public or whether Labour was the victim of impact of Brexit and everything around Brexit rather than its radical um, politics agenda. So we don't really know. We don't really um, know. And, it, and it's, it's interesting that you, you do talk about Labour because, of course, this is uh, the Social Review podcast or website that is firmly off the left of socialism. But what we also try to do is is, is take a sometimes more critical view of Labour's past and, and um, try and not Try, try sort of strip away the glorification at some points at some points and and i i found it very interesting that you you talked about how this is this is a societal problem with regards to public education and private schools and it just because it is ostensibly normally a left-wing thing to want private schools abolished doesn't mean that people on the left across the history of the left have not been have not failed to do so have not been have, I don't have their own didn't have their own personal hypocrisies as you, as you said um, and and you talked about that specifically with um uh, with regards to Jeremy Corbyn and his advisors and his top team Seamus Mill probably the most um, mm. uh, notable example of a former Winchester pupil um, and that sort of seeks nicely into what I was going to ask next because of course um, the book was published in 2018 but uh, it is now 2020. As you mentioned, last year was a debacle. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has gone. Keir Starmer is the new leader of the Labour Party, uh, and and you you talked about public support for the policy. And I think uh, I, I I seem to remember it wasn't abolishing public schools. It wasn't necessarily an unpopular public policy, but it certainly didn't command the levels of support that Labour's nationalisation and abolishing tuition fee plans, for example, carried. Um, but it's not. It's also not clear whether Keir Starmer is going to carry that policy forward. So obviously I'm assuming you want him to carry that policy forward, just as I do. But um uh with regards to actually selling it to the electorate, how do you how do you convince people that this is that abolishing private schools is the right the right thing to do and worth voting for? Well you have to learn I think you have to learn the lessons of um last year and you can have to try and um, present it in a much more diplomatic way, and I think you're going to have to bring people on side. And that's big. That I mean, that's the reason why we set up our our think tank, private private school policy reform. You know, it's got people like um, Melissa Ben and um, David Kynaston and um, Francis Green. You know, these are respectable um, members of the academic and political communities and the idea is that we have a we have a, a proper debate where we try and we try and we don't talk about abolition we talk about a reform of, of private education i mean my in my book i propose a sort of three-pronged uh, approach which, which would be the the sort of the, the removal of charitable status because they're not really charities anymore. It's not. It's just that they're out of step with modern, modern charity thinking. I think what we've discovered during COVID nineteen is that this sort of unfair advantage in our communities is no longer tolerable. So I don't think I think the cha- the charitable nature of a private school has always been a um, a, a good target or a, a popular theme. 
in terms of the reform of private schools. So I'll remove charitable status. I would get rid of all state subsidies. So at the moment, if if you're if you're a, a diplomat or a, a senior member of the armed forces, you can get a free paid for education at um, a top private school. You know, and that seems ridiculous to me. And I would I would get rid of that. And I would also remove the tax advantages that allow them to um, avoid paying about two billion pounds a year. And so in you know, in in those ways, you are introducing reforms of a of a two tier education system. You're trying to you're trying to even up um, the playing field and giving more children a much fairer chance without actually abolishing them. Because it might be that you can't abolish them. There will be you know, an almighty legal battle if you try to abolish them, and it may be that you'd force families to send their children abroad to get a, 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 a privileged education. And then you'd have people coming back from Switzerland, um, America, you know, China, Hong Kong, to um, govern us. And that's, that would be an even worse situation. So I think that if we want to if we want to make any headway in this in this debate and in this reform then we need to be more in, inclusive and you know people people forget is that um someone like michael gove uh would you know very much sees public schools as being out of kilter with um modern community sentiment yes he, he said he was pro abolishing them didn't he or dissolving them or Whatever. Yeah, I'm not sure he'd go as far as abolishing. He certainly, certainly wants them to have um, a more provide more free places for um, local disadvantaged children, and he would probably get rid of charitable status. Um, and he finds their very existence you know, um, iniquitous. But he wouldn't. I mean, finding something you know iniquitous or even immoral doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to you're going to you, you get, gives you the right to abolish them. Gives you the, um, yeah, the, the the power to abolish them. So, I mean, last year, it was a sort of it was all it was class war really. It was an all out attack on um, something that was is considered the you know, very vestiges of um, you know, the privileged um, few, and that was, I think, less successful. There are, there are a couple of different threads I sort of want to pick up on there, and I'm not entirely sure what shape the question's going to take, but we'll see where it goes. Um, so one of the, uh, the, the the overriding things in the book is, is is you talk about private schools essentially being essentially being a means of segregation, um, of taking, uh, taking children away from local communities, uh, from being embedded in their local communities and sending them to schools potentially very very far away um mm. so the, the the very act of having these uh public schools and private schools who which 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 are, are boarding um changes the makeup of local communities um, and you talked mm. there about um the risk of parents sending their kids abroad to schools and that could potentially have an even bigger change in makeup um if uh a lot of these kids who would otherwise be here aren't even going to be in the country for their most formative 
years for their childhoods um and i think perhaps one of the reasons why a lot of people find it hard to imagine a society without private schools other than the fact that they've been in existence for so many hundreds of years that it's just difficult to with anything it's difficult to imagine a life without them but a lot of people can maybe agree on that private schools need to be reformed or they need to be abolished but then what comes next is the difficult part of like so mm. what does anything replace them what do you do with the sites themselves do they mm. uh do they just become absorbed into the state sector and the government runs eaten uh what 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 happens then and we um a, a couple of well more than a couple of months ago around september october time we had um the sociologist sam friedman on the podcast to talk about uh yeah. his yeah. research on this the class ceiling mm. yeah it's 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 a great book he's a great guy um and his <laughs> i really <laughs> yeah um just... i i asked him this question his his radical solution was essentially to make all school to, to introduce a sort of lottery system where admissions is essentially sort of randomized you don't end up with these sort of uh inequalities made anew and when speaking to other members of the team about sourcing questions for this interview a kind of recurring theme was like how do you stop these power dichotomies emerging in new sort of manifestations so whether that yes, becomes yes. certain state schools just become really privileged and certain state schools are yes. really privileged anyway yeah. or if you have um i don't know academies or religious schools or whatever other type of school you want to throw up so um what kind of what kind of education settlement would you want to see would you want to if you were education secretary say would you want to introduce and do you think that um how, how do you think that needs to relate to community building um mm -hmm. but also um uh providing a sort of sensible way of dissolving and dissolving the system and reforming the system first of all i'd say that private school policy from we, we last year we published a paper which set out uh, a series of options you know, ranging from um, modest changes. So, for example, the introduction of more bursaries and more disadvantaged children um, being taken on by the schools, right through to you know, serious tax reforms, abolishing their charitable status, and then finally um, nationalisation, abolition, if you like. So we, we, we did try to cover... Um, the, these options and and set out a number of of practical means of achieving each um, ultimately i think that the the, the the problem that you identified is is the most difficult one and that is uh what happens if if you've got money and you want to improve the chances of life chances of your children then you're going to do whatever you can to make your child um, get the best possible chance in life it's 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 an extraordinarily powerful um, instinct and it's very hard to 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 legislate to stop parents doing that so you what you have to do is you have to make the the choice of sending a child to a private school a not very powerful one or one that uh, one that achieves the opposite um, objective so if your intention is to send your child to spending you know thirty thousand pounds a year sending your child to a um, illustrious 
private school is going to improve their chances of um, getting into Oxbridge or then going on to secure a top job in the city or becoming a member of parliament or becoming even you know, one of Boris Johnson's cabinet ministers. You know, If that's your intention, at the moment, all the figures point in that mm. direction. So, you know, 7% of the public go to... 7% of the children, children, British children go to private schools and yet... For example, in Boris Johnson's cabinet, more than sixty percent of private education. It must be more than that by now, because you know things have inevitably moved on. He's, remo- he's removed his his state educated chancellor and 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 um, appointed a um, a Wickhamist, doesn't he? I think, yeah. Mm, so yes, yeah. So if that is your intention, um, and the stats support that um, that that choice then you've got to, we've got to try and nullify that that outcome and you can you can only do that really by making making state schools more attractive and at the same time making private schools less attractive so my my idea is to turn private schools into vanity projects for families to make them have give them no more than snob value so if you were to say look 7% of the country's children go to private school therefore only 7% of them will be admitted to starting with Oxbridge or Russell Group's universities going on to um, public public sector employment um, parliament um, government um, civil service so you know, you're, you're capping the number of children, um, privately educated, chances of getting these top jobs and making it much more representative. So it's not so grossly unfair the situation we have now. So that that I might that would do it. That would do it because in a most people most most parents would look at that quite soberly and think. Right, that isn't going to achieve the outcome I want for my child. Therefore, I need to invest in my local school because even if that school um, has more pupils and the classes are bigger, I can still see how if I send my child, I spend money on sending my child to the, the private school, it's probably it's probably going to be disadvantageous. So by doing nothing to the state school system. And I don't, by the way, I don't advocate doing nothing. I simply say that simply, simply curbing the advantage of the private schools, you automatically are encouraging families to send their children to their local comprehensive schools. And with that, what you're doing is you're also this, there's a migration of wealth from the private schools to the comprehensive state schools. You're you're getting middle class families with their you know, sharp elbows big bank accounts and you're putting them in the state school environment and you know, not not only will you be raising standards at state schools you'll be also um, improving the you know, facilities instead of people donating to private schools instead of giving very generously to the the new new cricket pavilion at the local private school. It'll be going to this money will be going to the, the state school, and 
you know, that's with not doing anything. That's with not increasing the education budget in any way at all. That's that's not imposing a sort of a postcode lottery to um, um, secondary school um, selection. So even so, we, we we're already on our way to evening the evening out the playing field and making things a lot fairer. And at the same time, bringing people together, bringing bringing our communities together and making them stronger and, and, and fairer. It's it's a really interesting idea. And, and you, you mentioned universities there and university admissions and, and this this whole idea of caps. Um, and that, again, seeks nicely into what I wanted to ask next because I think in many ways the, the, the 2010s era reforms to Britain's universities are going to have a very long tail in mm. British politics and influence our our politics and our economics and our and voting behavior for a very very long time um perhaps in ways which we cannot really foresee um because it's changed so radically quickly even like 20 probably maybe more towards 25 30 years ago now um the vast majority of people were not going to university would never go to university and now it's something like 50 percent of 50 percent of young people going to university um and do you do you think that universities and the influence of university in any individual's life um, is going to, or is perhaps maybe displacing the influence that public schools have in some sense on these kind of like wider social trends of which which people from which social classes end up in which jobs and um, all those kind of questions of determining livelihoods and futures or do you think it is still very much public schools which are predominant um in influencing those things or is it too early to say my 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 gut feeling is that the the um the stranglehold that the top public schools have over the top universities won't really change i think that that, that will be it'll be just as just as restrictive as it as it is now I mean, I know Oxford has made some you know big big strides last year, um, but you know they're not they're not counting things. They're not counting every everything together. They're not counting overseas students as privately educated, and they're not taking account of um, people who went to private schools until the sixth form and then switched to state sixth form colleges. Um, so there are an awful lot of people being missed in their their accounting. But anyway, the point is that at the moment, you know, a number, a small number of very expensive schools um, disproportionately send too many children to Oxbridge and Russell Group universities. And I don't see that change just by broadening the um, the access to um, university. All, the, all that's really happening is that um, poorer students are going to uh, non-so-called, you know, elite universities, um, and that's what the stats show. It shows that then, then it's not really um, improving disadvantaged children's access to um, the top universities. And when I say top universities, I mean the, the an institution that. Will, which gives you a calling card to a very good job and a very good salary when you leave, when you enter the workplace. That's what I'm, that's what I really mean. The known Russell Group ones, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And the and that that process begins at a very early age. You know, it begins at prep school. You know, you are you know the the, the age attainment gap between the state and private education sectors. You know, is is still huge. I mean, the, the present government talks about the attainment gap closing, but you know, it isn't really closing. Um, there is still, you know, kids are still a couple of years ahead of private school kids are a couple of years ahead of their of their um, state school counterparts by the time um, they're making big decisions in their education, by the time they're sitting um, exams and going to going to interviews. Um, so that that advantage is it's, it's created early and is shaped and 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 focused and you know to the ultimate the ultimate um, ambition or the ultimate gain of, of getting getting a good place at a good university and from where all else follows and then of course you can talk about how uh, once you're out of university you've then got your own network of people who you can use to promote your own chances of getting a better job um, as you as you go forward in life. On, the, on that matter of network, there's a really, I mean, I've, I'm listeners, so I've already implored you to read the book, but you should definitely read the book. And there's a, there's a really fascinating chapter where you specifically just focus on the life of David Cameron and how pretty much the entire life of David Cameron and career of David Cameron is one big result of the network of one connection after another of one phone call after another to the right person based on who's his who his family is who he went to school with who taught him at school how that links with other people there's a really interesting reference to how both tony blair and david cameron had the same teacher despite going to completely different private schools and that same teacher is credited with really influencing both those men at a young age which i thought was just fascinating anecdote aside seems like a kind of like detail which would be in if there was like a the crown style show about british politics that you'd have that character show up um in the 80s or the 70s whenever they were both at school i don't want to say this is more of a comment than a question but i think part of the part of part of part of what i what i try to do in, in these interviews when we're sort of discussing these concepts is sort of try and get into the psychology of it of how you can be an individual who who is in this kind of position of privilege and, and very self-evidently their entire life is a result of that privilege and particularly with regards to david cameron of how his political career was so defined by the war against people on benefits and the characterization of people on benefits as scroungers as uh not working hard enough and this is all being said by a man who's pretty much not really had to work for anything in his life <laughs> um is, is it just that the public schools breed that kind of thinking that it's never your fault that it's that you're innately good because you're wealthy and powerful and you go to a lovely school where there's stone well i did what, I, yeah I, I, what you say about um uh blair and, and cameron and the fact that doc, there was dr eric anderson who was there who was their joint teacher I mean, I, and when 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 blair was at fetters anderson was was there and was Influential in um, getting him back on the straight and narrow after he had 
some problems and same same with Cameron at, at Eton because by that time um, and sort of moved to Eton so yeah I mean who, who it's just it's extraordinary isn't it I mean these aren't even two they didn't even go to the same, same school we're not even talking about Boris and um, and Cameron we're talking about another prime minister who just happened to share so you know we talk about three three prime ministers in the space of a few years who all share very similar um, networks and, and backgrounds although apparently one of them represents a very different type of politics it doesn't seem to me that you're getting much of a, a choice if you've if you've got a system which promotes a very narrow section of society to the very top political jobs in this country you're missing out on an awful lot of of talent but as you say an awful lot of people who who perhaps have a better understanding of what scrounging is or isn't um, or what it's like to you know, try and survive on 150 quid a week so there's certainly that but in in, in the book I also, there's also a chapter called The Entitlement Complex which tries to um, tries to establish what exactly is is there a public school psyche is there a personality which you could comfortably use to describe uh, Tony Benn and um, Nigel Farage for example or you know Jeremy Corbyn and and, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, I would say what you what you can identify is a a burning sense of do or die ambition. That whatever that whatever happens in the world, as long as you are come out on top and doing the very best you can and achieving the things that your school would be very proud of, then that is a good result. Um, so for someone like David Cameron, it was the reason he didn't return to the back benches after he was ousted was because there was there was not Eton didn't didn't teach children about public service ethos. What's the point of going back to the back benches and serving your constituents in in Whitney? What was the that that's that is of absolutely no value in his very narrow terms of ambition and and success and i think that that his his walking away from and same with george osborne both of them sort of walked away from parliament and went on to take very high high paying jobs which would you know you could also tick um, in terms of public school um, success stories, so I so I want to cast an eye to the future somewhat. And do, are you optimistic about the future or lack thereof of, of public education and Britain's education in general? Do you think in your lifetime, in our lifetimes, we'll see uh, any kind of dissolution of the public schools, or do you think do you think it's still unlikely? I I think it's 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 unlikely. I mean, they've sh- shown over the years just how um, resilient they are. They 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 have this um, unbelievable ability to turn disadvantage to 
their own advantage. They can, I mean, and the vested interest that supports them means that it requires such a um, politic, such a sort of um, aggressive political um, overturning of the system that it's hard to see how you would ever get get rid of them. That's why I think. Um, piecemeal reform is probably the best way of of confronting the problem um, because if you if you if you attack them from if you if you attack the schools so directly that they're forced to defend themselves and they can see exactly where you're coming from then they are very good at um, self-defense and as I said turning disaster into triumph so I don't have I don't I don't believe we're going to see the end of private schools for some time to come. Um, just a, a quick sort of final question on on present day circumstances. Um, schools have been in the limelight recently because with regards to coronavirus uh, and their reopening or not reopening, um, the right wing press and the government have characteristically characteristically been criticising uh, teachers unions about this. Um, blame the unions. Uh, saying it's mm, the yeah, you yeah. Know, moral, moral heroic duty to go and teach and um, you know risk lives to, to, to be reopening schools when it's not clear that that would be effective what is your what is your sorts of sense sort of sense of that debate at the moment it's a, I mean you're right the lots of the tabloid press have try to turn it into a political act of defiance. <laughs> They're calling it class war, aren't they? Literally, um, that's how they're characterising it. I, you know, I don't see that at all. I, 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 I don't see how you can make um, someone or put someone in a, in a dangerous position if they if they feel that their their safety is at risk. I mean, it's it's a it's a, it's a personal it should be a personal decision, and. Um, at this stage of a pandemic, when we don't even we don't even understand what kind of disease we're really dealing with, I think it's extraordinarily um, cruel, reckless upon the government to start turning it into an us and them battle between the, the teachers and politicians about who should be whether or not children should be at school, and then you know invoking the sort of moral high ground by saying it's in the interests of the children themselves that that they're at school you're 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 depriving children of vital vital education by by not um by not exposing yourself to an unknown risk which is what michael gove said on sunday when he was on the andrew Marr program he said he admitted there was there was a risk he didn't know what it was but the alternative was to lock yourself away and never expose yourself to any risk at all. But that's that's a very different argument about public safety of our schools. Hello and welcome to another segment of this um, week's podcast where I am joined by uh, Callum O'Dwyer, who you previously would have heard... Um, quite a while ago on the podcast i think one of the first episodes um welcome back callum thank you thank you very much for having me although the circumstances in which callum is back are slightly less fortunate in that continuing with this theme of talking about life in lockdown how our lives have been changed um callum uh 
has had is still sort of suffering from coronavirus um so we're just going to be talking a bit about that um so in as a sort of like overview callum how has it been with covid how <laughs> how are you feeling are you okay so, so now? my story is perhaps a slightly unusual one um i got the virus on the well i started showing symptoms on the 23rd of march so it was actually um the week of lockdown um on on the friday the pubs and uh, restaurants closed and then yeah. on the monday i was starting to get sick um the actual sensation of getting the virus is it's it's so strange it's just really weird um it, the, the the way it comes on the the, the range of symptoms it, everyone has this kind of muscle memory of of having colds or, or flus and they kind of know mm. where the peaks and troughs are and, and how to get through them and um, almost literally every hour on the hour i was getting a new symptom of like oh that's very discernibly a fever with chills oh that's oh that's what fatigue feels like okay um and for the first so so, I, so it was new that's right yeah it, it felt very weird very strange um and it, it, when it initially came on um it felt like the sort of intensity of a bad flu and that was day one <laughs> um and, and and as it progressed it um it it it, 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 it I, I, I like my range of symptoms basically sort of toward the middle of it was I was feverish a lot of the time I was really really tired um I was muscularly very very weak I had constant nausea um and and <laughs> other things which I've now forgotten <laughs> it was so um <laughs> and, and for about two weeks that was kind of my life and um, I was living by myself and it was it was very intense very difficult to kind of look after myself I was just on ready meals really I couldn't even really cook um and and that that was all very very tricky and also the the, the other strange thing about it is it felt like it would sort of come in peaks and troughs like I felt like I would be start to get better and either I would feel like I would regress you know a, a few days or a whole new symptom would show up out of nowhere mm. and 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 in that sense and and also the, the the worst thing about it was 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 the constant tightness around my chest and uh, shortness of breath um on 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 a quick aside jasper I, at one point i was talking on nhs 111 because the shortness of breath was so bad um that i was labored breathing i i i had got off a phone call with some friends and i almost fainted just because mm-hmm. i wasn't able to get enough air in um and was speaking to them, getting the advice, and they were like, "Well, how? What would you describe the feeling of the tightness of your chest?" And I, without thinking, was like, "Oh, it's like it's like wearing a corset." Me having had the experience of being a pantomime dame four times, thought this was a universal experience that everyone could relate to, and would be fi- completely fine for a twenty-year-old. I mean, I can relate to it. Well, exactly, a a pantomime dame. <laughs> uh, that's from the Christopher Biggins School of Medical uh, <laughs> Practice, but. Um, yeah, so that's so, so. So it was the the way that it was so many things all at once. The way that it was affecting my breathing, that it was affecting my lungs. Um, I never felt like a lot of pain inside my lungs. It was just kind of um, it was it was just kind of that difficulty breathing and all that sort of stuff. So mm. I had to call NHS one 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 a couple of times um, to talk through about that. And basically, 
Um, the service was excellent. I can't. They're they're doing an incredible job there, and 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 it's it, they they are the backbone of 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 primary healthcare at the moment. Um, and speaking to them, and and then the doctors, they kind of I think were trying to assess me of like how bad is it? Do we need to bring him in? And that was kind of the last resort was bringing me into hospital. Um. Did you go to hospital? I, I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, they, okay. b- b- both times I called, they, they they seemed to think it would just pass, and it, and it did. Thankfully, it was a couple of days in the second circumstance of just having really laboured breathing, and the thing is, at Jasper, like, it's just annoying. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, like, imagine if someone like was always like pointing out that you weren't quite breathing properly, but it's your own body yeah. doing that like 24 hours a day like that's it's just annoying mm. and and you can't do basic tasks that you want to do like cook yeah exactly and i like <laughs> two of my coping mechanisms for life um is like exercising cooking and like both of those mm. are taken away from me so i was like well <laughs> at least i have animal crossing <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's become the big lockdown phenomenon isn't it? particularly with the social review people but, but because it was all under lockdown as well you know, I, 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 I was was struggling with 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 domestic tasks, and I couldn't even, like, I couldn't even have like someone like, 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 cook me a meal or something, or like, it it, it wasn't like any other kind of situation where, yeah, I, I was dealing with a very debilitating illness, and also having zero human contact. Um, mm. and, and 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 being able to have no help to do me to, like the things I was deficient in that 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 was very very difficult, um, yeah. And 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 I had the actual virus itself. I think for about two weeks, um, and I felt like I was getting better, and then I've been hit with now coming up to well, it's been five, nearly six weeks, of like post viral fatigue, mm. um where effectively it's felt like all of the same muscle fatigue and actually in some t- like cases worse muscle weakness um f- for even longer um but with the other symptoms gone and if anything that's been the hardest part because I've been even more debilitated like there was at one point I was sat in my armchair um and I leant over to pick up my it was like a liter water bottle which was full so it's about a kilo's weight like at a full arm stretch, mm. I I struggled to pick up the bottle of water. Like, if if any of like mm. someone's listening and wants to like try that, like, it's 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 not even anything that anyone would ever think of being being difficult. But mm. I I I was I was that I was I was, I was that weak. Um, yeah. yeah. And and the other aspect of it as well is. Um, I have. I've, I've. I've. I've talked on a podcast previously about uh, mental health and politics, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I have uh, bipolar disorder, and um, which is uh, not necessarily, you know, uh, a, a song and a dance at the best of times. Um, but when you're uh, ill and locked away and have no human contact and are weak, and then like the waves, the the rolling waves of depression come in like a storm over the horizon, mm. and you just sat there unable to like <laughs> get anywhere in your little paddling boat, and you're like, oh well. Mm. got whether this one and that that was really really tough i think that was like mm. like it felt like i was shutting down 
um, in mm. almost every way. Um, and after about five weeks of being sick, total, so two weeks of virus and three weeks of, of the fatigue, I decided I would move back in with my parents, which was a very mm -hmm. difficult decision to make. I basically had decided that it should have been long enough by now that I'm not infectious. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that I also had to make a decision that my, my mental and physical health was deteriorating to the point where um, I kind of had to take that small risk, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's it, like, I, it, it, this has been the lowest ebb of my life, my experience so far, for sure. And mm. um, I, I, I don't want to scare people because I think my experience has been unusual. You're right, Jasper, at the start. So you, you, you said to, you want to hear about people who've had COVID. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you do hear about people who've had it, who haven't had it for two weeks. It wasn't very good, but then they're kind of up and on the mend. And um, mm. I seem to be in the lucky group of people for whom it just seems to go on and on and on. So the yeah. stage that I'm at now, um, the positive is I have got better. I have progressed. When I first moved back home, I was struggling to climb a set of stairs, like genuinely struggling mm -hmm. in a lot of pain. Now I can do it as if it's almost normal, um, which is a huge thing for me. Huge thing. Um, mm. I Yesterday I walked 10 minutes to the post box and back. Um, and 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 my muscle like muscularly and in terms of tiredness, I've improved a lot. Um, the the thing that kind of now is happening that that is the thing holding me back is whenever I um, uh, walk or do any exercise, um, e either about half an hour later or even six hours later, it's like my lungs get really. It's not even like they're inflamed, and and I'm I'm mildly asthmatic, but my medication doesn't really sort of affect this. Mm. It, it, I, I get back that shortness of breath exactly like I did before. I get the tightness of in my chest, um, and at the moment I'm just trying to like push my boundaries a little bit in terms of seeing when that happens, or like how much exercise can I do, or like how far can I walk, um, mm. th th and that's me on week eight nearly. I'm, I'm, yeah. is, is a 10 minute walk to the post box and that's like you know um, and the post box I'm going to it's a very nice post box it's a golden one <laughs> it's golden yeah they painted it gold for an Olympic uh, athlete for t Tim Bailey who was a canoeist who won a gold medal in 20, 2012 oh, wow. so, so I, I feel like I'm getting just a little chip off his gold medal every time I make it there it's great <laughs> Definitely. Um, but so, so yeah, yeah, you, you said about how your experience is slightly more unusual. We know, as you said, that there is that smaller group of people who have this long tail end, which you're suffering through, which no one really knows why. Is that, is that correct? Like, no one really knows why it's affecting some people like this? Or do we have some kind of idea? It's, it's not known. I, I, I did read an article, um, and, and I think I can't remember exactly the the, the chap's um, position, but he's he's I think he's actually quite senior in like one of the public health um, England organisations yeah. or something this like that. This is the Guardian article. It is, yeah, it is, yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 he 
you know, with his unique position of knowing a lot about different diseases and, and, and knowing what it was like. And I think he actually had, had, had been through a few different diseases. They sort of said it's a bit like dengue fever in terms of how it hits the body and how the body responds. Um, and, and I think that post-viral fatigue is, is something which just isn't really super known about. Um, it, it, it isn't something which I think that they can pinpoint this particular person will get it. Um, and, and I think maybe as well that perhaps a lot of the focus on COVID has been on the death, the death rate. And I've heard from people basically like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm young, I'll be fine. And it's like, well, yeah, you'll be, you'll live. But like, I, I, I would like what I would do to trade away these two months of just misery. Like, like it's just been so draining because it's almost kind of taken everything away from me at my worst. At my worst point, it took everything away from me that could help. Um, so I just kind of hyper fixated on the few things that I could do, which was, um, <laughs> like, which, which, which either was like staring at my window Play and animal crossing. naming the birds or yeah, or animal crossing, which is basically the same thing. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, post viral fatigue can kind of happen with the flu. You know, it can happen with 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 more uh, common or garden variety viruses, um, but 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 this is going on and on and on, and it's and and it's and it's tricky because a lot of workplaces have got maximum sick leave allowances. Um, that that a lot of places are um, that were kind of not built for a country for even a few tens of thousands of people additionally getting long-term sick do you do you think do you think there needs to be more transparency and openness and honesty about what it is like what it has been like living with the virus do you think if more people um more people who'd had it were had their stories shared in the media that uh people would be acting differently that people would realize the reality of the virus I actually think to start, a lot of people were quite scared of it, of the virus. And I think people legitimately knew that this was something that could not only kill them, but potentially, and maybe to a bigger degree, people in their life who are of a higher risk factor, whether that's age or or, or underlying illness or anything like that. I think people were conscious of that. I think it's important as, as, as we learn more about the disease and we learn more about the symptoms and, and how they affect people in the long run that that's something which is kind of communicated effectively to the public so like the point i made so people don't think this is just a disease that you're avoiding death on and then you're fine and mm. um, the, the people understand sort of the, the the risks in a more broad sense that the the idea that if, if you can afford to take two months off work then you know go ahead like take those risks um but and 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 i think also if we're more as we learn more about the illness it maybe would help find more people who are having you know in the early onset of the of the illness like i i i I did have a fever but i hardly had a cough at all um like it was it was a bit of a one but i wouldn't have picked it up as being anything unusual if not for the fact i was already in bed with you know a temperature of 
38, but my hands and feet were ice cold. Um, mm. it, 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 I, I think because the illness manifests itself in so many different ways, because the, the, it, you know the, the, the body has not very many defenses for this, hasn't developed very many defenses for this. It's 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 um, it can obviously <laughs> most people for it does, um, but it's uh, it's one of those things where um, it, it, it it can have it can have a long effect on you long after the illness is gone. And if more people are aware of that, I think they can see it in themselves when it starts to happen, but also have more sympathy for people who've had it long term. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just quickly before we wrap up, you're um, obviously you're you're Scottish and you're in Scotland, um, and there there's been a very or well, more recently at least fracturing of the fracturing of that initial united approach with regards to um, tackling the virus and lockdown. Um, the message in Scotland is still stay at home, right? Uh, as it is in Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, what is your sense of the situation with the Scottish government in their handling of the crisis? Um, are people focusing? Are people focusing much on what central government and the Conservatives are doing? Is the main focus just on what Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP are doing? What What's that like up there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's difficult because I can. I've, it does definitely feel like, and, and this is almost always the case in Scottish politics, actually, or or, or Scottish national life is. This they still look to Westminster, you know, and and the UK government because you know it is nominally in charge of a lot of 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 reserve uh, things relating to 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 this, um, but. I, I think a lot of people are looking at the UK government, especially in the last week, and especially with the with the largely I would say with the with the communications breakdown um from, from Boris Johnson's Sunday night address um, and everything surrounding that, um I think that people compare that to Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish government uh favourably, I think it's favourably to the Scottish government. Um, and, and I think that sometimes national politics has been brought into this when really you need to have the flexibility of different parts of the UK. And, and that's not even just by the nations, but by, by regions as well, um, of, of being able to have degrees of control over lockdown um, because in different areas, you need a more flexible approach. When it comes to opening up the country, um, once it's safe, or in stages, or, or in bits and pieces, um, and so, 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 therefore, Scotland should take a different approach, um, where it's needed. And I think, just in general, just from the political point of view, I, I, I think it is, it is kind of playing into, it, it is definitely playing into the benefit of 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 Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish government that she's seen as, as being able to run this well, even though, you know, arguably Scottish care home crisis is even worse than in England. Um, that, that, that there's, there's been some big questions over and, 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 and um, the SNP government also didn't release details of, of coronavirus is happening in, in Scotland during a Nike conference weeks before the official um, coronavirus uh, victims were first uh, put forward. You know, it's, it's, it's it, the, the, there are ways that they have handled this that they managed to escape scrutiny of because there's a bigger blunder down in London. 
Sure. But also equally, when mistakes happen down south, they kind of reap the benefit of that. Um, yeah. And I think I have been reaping it in a way that, that perhaps the... Um, the, the 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 Welsh Labour government have uh, haven't necessarily been able to to do so, um, but it's it, it, it is just one of those things, and and th- those are the politics of it. But I I, I do genuinely think that um, having a more um, iterative approach across the UK is actually a, 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 the, the the best one. Thank you so much for coming on, Callum, and talking about your experiences with it. Um... Thank you, Jasper. Sorry for bumming everyone else out. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, we could we try another positive note. Where, where I mean, I you you have a, have you got back to cooking yet? Uh, not quite yet. Not, not not just yet. I'm 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 working my way towards that. I should be able to do that pretty soon. So that's them. Excellent. Tweet what you cook. Or... Yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> And the episode draws to a close. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to both uh, Callum and Robert for Kate for coming on and talking. Uh, really interesting discussions. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, posh boys, how could we have known the impact that that would have this week? The public school mentality on government of thinking that you can do whatever you want and get away with it. Timely, timely stuff. Callum talked there about cooking, how he was unable to cook and how much he loves cooking, um, but that he was going to tweet what he cooked uh, when he got back to it. And he has tweeted what he cooked. In fact, he's got a whole thread about his experiences suffering with coronavirus. You can see the step by step, day by day life in detail. Uh, his Twitter is at Callum J. O'Dwyer. It's a really good thread. Um, and we are, of course, delighted that Callum is back to cooking. So, Uh, do go check that out otherwise thanks so much for listening we're going to have another episode up in the next couple of days so do look out for that one otherwise stay safe stay alert stay indoors bye bye